there's somebody in like, you know, Sydney, Australia right now with a book in their hand is thinking about the world along the same lines of the conversation that we're having. It's literally us manipulating and maneuvering 26 letters into different arrangements that might just liberate somebody. Literacy is, is freedom. And so, so many people was yelling, you know, and it was wild to me. I was like, and this is literature right here. <laughs> you know what I mean? I was like, I was like, this is the importance of books. You're listening to the Freedom Takes, a podcast from Freedom Reads. I'm your host, Reginald Dwayne Betts. I'm a poet, a lawyer, and a director of Freedom Reads. You'll also hear the voice of my guest co-host, Kelly Hernandez. She's a law student at Yale who works with me on Freedom Reads. Today, our guest is Erica Sanchez. Like me, she's a poet. She's also an essayist. And unlike me, she's a fiction writer, a phenomenal one at that. We'll be discussing her debut young adult novel, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. Erica, it's a pleasure to have you on the show. We'd love it, we know our listeners would too, to have you read a passage from I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. But first, could you could you set up that passage for those who haven't read it yet? This is chapter six of the novel, I Am Not Your Perfect Mexican Daughter. And in this chapter, I guess all you need to know is that the protagonist's sister has recently died. And for those of you who have read the book already, thank you. I really appreciate it. My cousin Victor is turning seven today. And my tío Bigotes, yes, Uncle Mustache, is throwing him a big birthday party to celebrate. But I think it's just an excuse for him to get drunk. As Ama is brushing her hair in the bathroom, I tell her she looks pretty and ask if I can stay home. I want to figure out how to get back inside Olga's room. The key must be in the apartment somewhere. But Ama says no without even bothering to look at me. Maybe she thinks that if she leaves me alone, I'm going to orchestrate a giant orgy or overdose on heroin. I don't know why she doesn't trust me. I keep telling her that I will never get pregnant like my cousin Vanessa, but it doesn't matter to her. Even if I don't find the key, at least I'd be alone. I'm hardly ever by myself in the apartment because Amma is always all up in my business and won't leave me behind. Sometimes when my parents go to bed, I open all the windows, which Amma hates, and let the breeze flap the curtains open. I sit in the living room with a cup of coffee, journal, book, and a reading lamp. I like the late night sounds of traffic, even when they're disrupted by the pops of gunshots. I decided to keep begging. Ama, please, I just want to stay here and read. I hate parties. I'm just going to go sit somewhere by myself. I don't want to talk to anyone. What kind of girl hates parties? This kind, I say pointing to myself. You know that. Theo's house always smells of old fruit and wet dog, which I don't understand because Chompiras has been dead for three years. The stereo is blasting Los Bukis and screaming children are running in and out of the house. Though I really hate kids, the part I hate most about these parties is arriving and departing. If I don't kiss each and every relative on the cheek, hello and goodbye, even if I don't know them, Ama calls me on Malcriada, a badly raised daughter. You want to be like those güeros maleducados? Ama always asks. In that case, yes, I do want to be like an impolite white person, but I just shut my mouth because it's not worth arguing about. 
I kiss everyone in the house hello, including Tio Cayetano, even though I can't stand him. When I was a kid, he used to stick his finger in my mouth when Wong was looking. The last time he did it was during Vanessa's communion party when I was 12. I was in the bathroom while everyone was in the backyard. As I came out, he forced his finger in my mouth much deeper than the times before. So I bit him. I clamped my mouth and wouldn't let go. I think I wanted to reach bone. Hija tu pinche madre, he yelled. When I finally released his finger, he walked back outside, shaking his hand, letting the blood drip onto the floor. He told everyone the dog had bitten him and left the party with a paper towel wrapped around his finger. I sat in a corner for the rest of the night, drinking cup after cup of pop to get the salty metallic taste of his blood out of my mouth. I wonder if he ever did anything like that to Olga. Tio Bigotes' wife, Paloma, rushes to get us some food once we finish greeting every single person at the party. Tia Paloma is a woman so big that her stomach hangs low and everything wiggles when she walks. Every time I see her, I wonder how she and Theo have sex. Or maybe they don't even do it now that Theo has that new mistress we've heard rumors about. Amasa's Paloma has a thyroid problem, and I feel bad for her, but I've seen her eat three tortas in one sitting. Thyroid my ass. After I finish eating, I'm so full my pants nearly cut off my circulation. I'm uncomfortable no matter how I sit or shift. I almost want to lie down and let the food spread out. I don't know why I do this. Sometimes it's like I'm eating to drown something yowling inside me, even when I'm not really hungry. I pray that I never get as big as Tia Paloma. Buena para comer, Tia Milagro says, eyeballing my clean plate. Normally, I wouldn't be offended by a comment like that. Mexicans are always saying that about kids. It's meant as a compliment. Good eaters are people who will eat anything put in front of them with no complaints. They'll eat with enthusiasm. It means they aren't picky or entitled brats. But this time, I know it isn't meant as praise because Tia Milagros is always talking shit. I used to like her when I was little, but she's become a bitter, resentful woman over the years. Her husband left her for a woman half her age a long time ago, and she's been salty ever since. It's hard to take her seriously with her red perm and 80s bangs, but it pisses me off that I've become a target of her passive-aggressive cracks. Something about me just makes her angry. She was always sucking her teeth at what I'm wearing or making some comment about my weight, even though she's more floppy and misshapen than a sack of laundry. She loved Olga, though. Everyone did. I watch my cousin Vanessa feeding her daughter mashed up beans. Only 16 and already has a baby. That would be the worst thing that's ever happened to me. But Vanessa seems happy somehow. She's always giving Olivia kisses and telling her how much she loves her. I wonder if she'll ever finish high school. What kind of life can you have when you live with your parents and have a baby to take care of? Olivia is cute and all, but I never know what to do with babies. I walk outside and see my cousin, Freddie, and his wife, Alicia, arrive as a piñata is being set up. I've always been fascinated by them. Freddie graduated from the University of Illinois and works as an engineer downtown, and Alicia was a theater major at DePaul and works at Steppenwolf. They are always dressed like they stepped off a runway. Alicia has the most interesting outfits, dresses made of bright, crazy fabrics and earrings that look like they belong in museums. Today, two silver hands dangle from her ears. Freddie wears dark jeans and a black blazer. There's no one in my family like them. No one has ever gone to a real college. I always want to ask them a million questions. Hey guys, how are you? What's new? 
I feel like a frumpy dork when I talk to them because they seem so sophisticated. I get shy. We're good, Freddie says solemnly. I'm so sorry about your sister. We were in Thailand and couldn't make it to the funeral. Everyone in the house begins to come outside for the piñata. Victor suddenly starts crying because it isn't ready. Jesus, what a baby. Yeah, we're so, so sorry, Alicia says, taking my hand. That's what everyone always says about Olga. Sorry, sorry, sorry. I never know what to say. Is thank you the right answer? Thailand! How cool! What's that like? I don't want to talk about my sister. It was beautiful, Freddie smiles. I see Tia Paloma wiping Victor's face with the end of her blouse. He's hysterical. Yeah, we got to ride elephants, Alicia adds. It was amazing. So what are you thinking for college? Freddie looks uncomfortable. He can probably sense that they shouldn't talk about Olga anymore. I think I might visibly recoil every time someone says her name. I don't really know. I want to move away to New York, I think. Somewhere with a good English program. But my grades haven't been great lately, so I'm kind of worried. I really have to get my GPA up or else I'm screwed. When I remember the C I got in my algebra test, it feels like snakes hatching and slithering in my stomach. Well, listen, if you ever need help with your applications or have questions, please let us know. We need more people like you in college, Freddie says. Totally. Alicia nods, her silver hand swinging. I can probably get you a summer job at my company when you're old enough. It would look really great on a college application. Thanks, I say. I don't know what Freddie means by people like me. What am I like? Why would anyone care if I go to college or not? There's no one else I feel like talking to, so I go to the living room to read The Catcher in the Rye, which I had to smuggle in my bag because Ama always complains when I read at parties. Why do I always have to be so disrespectful? She wants to know. Why can't I just be at peace with my family? I don't feel like talking most of the time, and today everyone is going to be asking about quinceañera. Besides, all of my little cousins are still trying to break the piñata. I doubt anyone will notice that I'm gone. I just hope Tio Cayetano doesn't come in here when I'm alone. Yeah, cool. That was that was great. Thank you. One of the things that I most appreciate about this book is that you address mental health and you do it with such care. Mm-hmm. I know that this is something that uh, people rarely talked about. And just last week, we had a fellow student uh, die by suicide. And, and there's still so much stigma around mental health in the Latinx community and communities of color more broadly. So it meant a lot to see someone like Julia get the support she needed from a therapist. Um, and I was just wondering why you decided to address mental health so explicitly. I mean, the short answer is that I lived it. I was also a teenager who struggled with depression and it was very severe and it was untreated for a long time until I ended up hurting myself. And so I wanted it in a sense, well, to write about the experience, but also to destigmatize it because it's something that Latina teens experience in incredibly high rates. We have the highest suicide rates of all of our peers, which is horrifying and something that isn't really addressed very much as a public health issue. And so that was something that I was really trying to bring attention to. And writing about depression is really difficult in that you're, you're trying to make your reader feel what you feel or the what the narrator is feeling or, or the character is feeling. 
and to do that, you have to enter that space again. And so I had to like really go into a realm in my mind that was very painful that I felt was, was important. So it could feel true. It could feel accurate. I didn't know if I was going to like this book. Okay. And, and, um, <laughs> and I, and I, and I loved it though. You know, thank you. I, I found like a, that I had a deep emotional connection to, to Julia. Mm-hmm. You wrote something about how I felt as a 16 year old. Oh, that's great. I love to hear that. First of all, I was like, damn, she, she, she must have interviewed my family. because. <laughs> <laughs> well, we have a lot in common. If you have a lot in common with Julia, I think we, we, we should share stories. <laughs> but but I say like the, the the one thing that hit me though, and, and I've been struggling with this on my own and I wonder how you approach it. So I've read it and I thought this is the example right here of, of what I've always meant. And I think what other writers have always meant when they said you get to the universal through the particular. And because, you know, I deeply felt connected to her. And so my, my, my question is, um, when you write, how much were you thinking about audience? You know, I often don't think of audience until later because I don't really want that to tarnish the initial impulse because I feel like there's so much magic in that. And that's why I, I write because it's so exciting I want to write something that is as true as I can write it. And sometimes that's ugly and sometimes it's uncomfortable, and, but it's true to me and, and it feels authentic. And, and then what happens afterwards is often beyond our control, as you know, like you write a book and you have this image of it and people have other ideas that you never even considered. You know, a lot of the, the feedback that I got initially was that she was abrasive, et cetera. And I was like, but she wasn't is- even abrasive. She was like, she was like, she was she a person was like conflicted, <laughs> but also she was like hormonal and, and, and she yes. was really witty and, and vulnerable. You know, it's, it's really interesting hearing you say this, you know, you've written a novel and it's a coming of age story and it, and it invites people to say all of the things that they think about teenagers Oh yeah, people hate teenagers. Yeah, that's wow. It's insane. I'm like, wow. I mean, she's like going through some really terrible shit and she's doing her best and she's falling apart. Like, can you have some compassion? Yeah. I I was a shitty 15-year-old in many ways, but I was really trying. And I wanted to get to the heart of that age of you're confused about who you are, your place in the world. You really just want to be seen and no one really understands you. And I think about like, what I wanted to read as a kid, of course, you know, what every writer says, every writer of colors, like I wanted to see myself. And so I think about um, writers of- uh, White people don't never say that shit. <laughs> no, they shouldn't say it either. If they said it, I'd be men. Um, and you know, the people who hate Julia the most are white ladies, almost, <laughs> like always. And it's amazing because um, it's just like, she just kind of upsets their- their sensibilities, their uh, sense of propriety and, you know, decorum. And uh, Julia isn't about that. She doesn't follow those kinds of norms. That response kind of reflects a failure to see what the book was about. Because mm-hmm. I felt like on some fundamental level, and this is why I thought it was good. I, I thought the Julia part was, was really astute and on point. 
Mm-hmm. But, but it was also a given, you know, like if you write about young people, part of their struggles is to be seen. Right. Um, particularly when you write about like, you know, Mexican-American kid, black kid um, who's coming from a family that doesn't have certain things. But what I thought made the book brilliant, though, right, is that you astutely showed us how she wasn't being seen. But then you went a step further and showed us how she couldn't see her parents. Yes. And, yes, and I thank found you. That really powerful because you know what was fucked up is that like i think i'm righteous and shit right but what was fucked up about julia like if it was something about her that that made me sad like like didn't didn't make me dislike her but made me sad Mm -hmm. it's because she didn't even understand the way in which the world she lived in precluded her from being seen yeah but also precluded her from even imagining the lives of her parents right and it made me think that all children don't see their parents and yes and, and that that's just the consequence of youth right i thought that was what made you do that so i think for me it was important to include that because i wanted to show her limitations as well um and how even the people that we love the most we don't really know oftentimes we don't see we don't understand and so um her parents are are people who have lived these really full but traumatic lives and she can't really understand that um she can't see that her mother has been traumatized she she doesn't understand why her father's so silent um and i think that that happens to a lot of us uh immigrant kids is that we don't really understand what our parents have been through and what circumstances they've they've endured um in order to get to uh, this country to to stay in this country and so I, I thought that was really important to show that they they were all missing each other they could not see each other and they couldn't see Olga either and you know and until Julia started to to uncover things about her it was legit like a, a lot of complicated characters in the space of a quickly moving tightly written poetic novel that I was I was surprised that it was just so many points like the father had so much depth he actually silent in the book though you know like he but he has so much depth without 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 taking up a lot of space I think that was it was it was it was dope I'm not I'm I'm gonna stop singing your praises but it was dope (laughs) go on please (laughs) no No, I love what you said about the dad because I I love the dad and I think he's such an amazing character I mean at least for me because when I created him I was thinking of my own father and like the fathers that I knew um like just Mexican dads that stoic as fuck but like really complicated and they love their family and very hardworking it's just there's a lot there and a lot of people don't get to see like how beautiful our community is and a lot of again white people were like well what's up with the dad like what why is he so silent and I'm like oh my god he totally missed the point I do definitely want to say that this is something I personally really appreciated because I think that the mass media generally only portrays one version of the Mexican macho man hardworking immigrant etc and doesn't really expand on their life and what they've been through right and that's something that you capture and i appreciate because we all know about how how important it is for people to have multidimensionality in in stories like this um but 
I'll I'll lead this into another question, which is really more about the relationship between Olga and Julia. So Olga, for the listeners who haven't read the book yet, is Julia's sister who dies. This is in the beginning, so not a spoiler. Uh, <laughs> but both Julia and Olga in different ways defy what being a perfect Mexican daughter means. As a daughter of Mexican parents myself, I also felt the pressure to be a perfect Mexican daughter, to stay at home, cook for your parents, clean, be modest, be submissive, etc. How did you do with that? expectation (laughs) that was the question i was going to ask you Uh, yeah so i i want to know about your experience (laughs) i I mean i won't sugarcoat and say that it was easy um i think that that's often something that many first generation immigrants more broadly experience because you're in both worlds and there's always a pressure and tension between being americanized and Mm -hmm. having the cultures and expectations that my parents grew up with. So I'm no longer in your pueblo in Oaxaca. It's different here. And how oh, do you're those... from Oaxaca. Yes. Um, I love Oaxaca. I love Oaxaca too. <sighs> I'm about to say some corny ass tourist shit like, yo, is that close to Cancun? <laughs> this, this is why this is why people who who know Mexico be hating Americans because they they be like, yeah, I've not been to Mexico before. Where? Well, you know, Cancun. Like, no. No, it doesn't count. doesn't even count. Yeah. It doesn't count. I brace myself, though, <laughs> most times, because there will be an anecdote mm-hmm. about Puerto Vallarta or Cancun anytime I mention, uh, you know, I'm Mexican. So, I mean, how was it? I, I'm wondering also, um, it sounds like maybe you had similar experience facing these challenges or expectations. Mm-hmm. Um, how did you push back on these expectations and... How did you begin to question or or challenge the role of women um, in your life? Yeah. I did it quite early to my mother's chagrin um, and I drove her fucking nuts. So um, it was something that I grew up with, this tension between me and her of like how a woman is supposed to be. You know, when I left the house, I just did whatever the fuck I wanted. Honestly, I was like out just being wild. And my mom was just always perplexed at like my decisions and what I was actually doing with my life and um with good reason I mean it's a completely foreign kind of point of view that I have from her um it's it's something that's caused us a great deal of tension over the years and now that I'm like a señora myself, which is kind of horrifying to admit. I know what that word means, but I'm I'm not understanding because I I feel like you like like a decade younger than me. Like, wh- is it when you have a kid you get to be like your señor? Or, or, or? You, you, when you get married, you're a señora. And now that I'm married and I have a child, like I'm definitely a señora. And then yesterday I threw a chancla at my husband. And I was like, fuck, that's, that's it. I'm done. <laughs> the mark of the senora right there, if there's ever yeah. been Yeah, it was all in jest, but I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I did that. And so um, now that I am an adult woman and I have a child, like my mom seems to uh, backed off somewhat, but still there's moments of, of tension um, but yeah, there, it was just a constant struggle to, to again, be seen and to, and to live an authentic life because everyone else was like, what the fuck are you doing? You know, like I wanted to be a writer. Everyone was very perplexed by that. Um, I hated working corporate jobs or nine to five 
jobs. I, I, I just had like a really hard time making it in a world that felt like it was not meant for me and wasn't built for me. Now that I'm like established somewhat and I have a job that is, you know, steady and like, I, I just bought a house and shit. Like, I feel like now, like no one could tell me shit. (laughs) Let me ask you this writer question, because I I think you just hit me to something about wanting to be a writer. The first sentence, uh, you know, it's a bunch of famous first sentences, best of times, worst of times. Um, The the first joint in a hundred years of solitude. Oh Um, God. So they good. shot the white lady first from Oh <laughs> yes, paradise. Yeah, yes, how yes, you yes. got that? Also, I have a portrait of Toni Morrison in my home. Like she is like my saint. See, that's legit. That's actually now you know what? That's legit. But let me ask you this joint. I right. know you believe I'm a I'm a real writer. Yeah. But <laughs> let, but also not just the real writer, because you know what's fucked up as writers and as people in America is is a lot of times we believe that the only folks we love have to look like us. Mm. And, and and we act that out. In, in, in a lot of different ways. And the, and the things that you just said first, it's not that I didn't think you would get the first sentence of paradise, but that you, but that you were excited <laughs> about it. I was like, Oh shit. And then we was like, Oh, I got a, I got a portrait of her in my house. It's just one of those things that, that, that makes me see that like as a writer, you see in the ways in which America is trying to be a, a hodgepodge of what we all bring to it. Yeah. But I wanted to ask you, how, how did you go about that first sentence bit? What surprised me most about seeing my sister dead is the lingering smirk on her face. That is a mean first sentence. <laughs> I wanted you to have to keep reading. Yeah. Honestly, I was like, I'm going to get you. I don't know how, but I'm going to get you. And so I thought about it so much and it, it was just reading so much. You know, like I, I, I talk so much about the tradition of literature and how it's all a conversation, right? You know, like I couldn't write this without Toni Morrison. I couldn't write it without Marquez. I couldn't write it without Faulkner. I couldn't write it without Sandra Cisneros. Like it was all of these writers that influenced me, that made me the writer that I am today. That's something that I carry in my teaching where I I really want to emphasize the importance of reading deeply if you're going to be a writer. You know, and like, you have to love it because if you don't love it, then what the fuck is the point? You know, like this, this is not like a, a, a great way to get famous or to make money. Like, it's just not. And if that's Spoken your goal. from somebody who, who, who <laughs> both bought a house with words, has, has a book becoming a movie. And and it's excelling in two different genres. No, but I think everything you say is true. No, but, but you know what I mean? That I, I did it because I loved it and not because I was like out to get rich. It wasn't like, that's really not the way to do it. I don't think, because there are other ways to get rich that are much easier. Investment banking. Like my, yeah. Like go do that. Yeah. If you don't really care about writing, like don't, don't try to do this. If this is not what you love. And, and kids have asked me like, how do you get famous? I'm like, well, that's not the point. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> I'm like, it just happened to be that way and thank you. But uh, I love to write. Like I deeply, deeply love reading and writing. Words excite me. I'm a gigantic nerd. All I want to do for the most part is do my work and be left alone, honestly. So I was just wondering, you mentioned in your author bio that you wanted to be a writer since you were 12 years old and giant by vocals, your words, not mine. True facts. Uh, but <laughs> I have mine right here. Uh, 
tell us a little bit more about that 12 year old like how did writing come to you yeah well you know I was a pretty lonely kid just like introverted weird artistic uh was not cool I mean shocking I know um was <laughs> not popular and so my friends were my books and um I realized I loved words and I loved creating images with words and and that was so exciting and so I started with poetry and um it was just like this world had opened up to me that I didn't know existed and it was just so in, exhilarating for me and as a kid who was like lonely and kind of depressed and then really depressed like that shit helped me um being able to like read books about people who were also sad or also struggling they were never people of color unfortunately but um until I got older but yeah just like having uh an escape also to just go into a different world that wasn't familiar and because of that I feel like in many ways I've lived like a million lives in my brain because I've read so many books and I, I think about stories all the time and I feel very interconnected with the world and so um that might sound very romantic, but for me, writing is, is a spiritual practice. It's not just like my job. It's not a hobby. It's like, this is who I am. And I don't know how else to be. You spoke about this a, a, a little bit, um, but you mentioned a lot of novelists. And I wonder, um, you know, cause you got a lot of range in terms of novelists, right? I wonder who, who do you think of as your antecedents as a poet? Oh yeah. Oh, so many. This question excites me. Um, Emily Dickinson, she was an early poet that, you know, I found uh, in in my evolution. Um, I love Larry Levis. Oh, love, shit. Love, yeah. <laughs> yeah. Adore Larry Levis. Um, you know, my homie Eduardo Corral, mm -hmm. he's just killing it. He's amazing. He's so good. A guillotine. Guillotine. His new book is guillotine. Guillotine is stunning. Yeah, and his previous book also stunning. Uh, so he he's taught me a lot. Philip B. Williams, Sophia Sinclair, Rigoberto Gonzalez, Sandra Cisneros. Like I mentioned before, she she taught me a lot. I mean, I could go on and on. But it's nice to mention the names, almost like a roll call, just because, like you know, like John Mario, Nicole Silly, Randy yes, Horton, yes. Natalie I just, Diaz. Yes, I just taught their books. In fact, just so like listeners could hear the names, because I also I, I found. You know, I got introduced to poetry through anthologies, mm, and, I, and I was I was in prison, and it just like broke my entire world open, and, and yeah. that's how I ended up becoming a poet. But I just want to say my favorite um, Emily Dickinson poem is uh, "Much Madness Is Divine Sentence." Oh, I like and, that uh, one. And it's one of the first things um, that that like one of the first poems of hers that I memorized. But what I find, and I could just I, I could just say the whole thing now because it's so short. Uh, Much madness is divine sense to a discerning eye. Much since the starkest madness, tis the majority in this as all prevail. Ascent, and you are sane. The more you're straightway dangerous and handled with a chain. And and I felt like that was um the struggle of this this novel was was Julia was trying to figure out how to make sense of the world that she lived in, independent of these messages. That she was receiving right mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And, and and so i feel like you know what was beautiful about that is is that's the beautiful struggle that we all go through um people will tell you how you're wrong and not how you have wrong ideas yeah, yeah, but how yeah. you are wrong 
And, and I appreciate you you writing that. Thank you. We ask all our guests this question. Frederick Douglass said that when we read, we become forever free. Um, how do you think about the relationship between reading and freedom? Oh, God. Because of books, I was able to imagine a life that was different from the one that I was living. And I think that that's really important. It's also important that people read in order to to feel a sense of, of self and, and to also empathize with other people. Because I think that's very revolutionary to have really, really deep empathy and I don't know I just I think reading can change lives it's changed mine and like I said it was it's, it's a spiritual experience for me that's beautiful and thanks so much for sharing that Erica Sanchez a pleasure to have you involved a pleasure to have you be one of our literary ambassadors I'm looking forward to the new book and and these young folks they love your book and, and we'll be sending you some letters and let you know just, just how much they 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 appreciated getting it Oh, I love that. This is great. Thank you. Thanks for joining us for the Freedom Takes, a new podcast from Freedom Reads. We'll be back next time with another contemporary writer. You can find out more about Freedom Reads and subscribe to our newsletter at freedomreads.org. That's F-R-E-E-D-O-M-R-E-A-D-S dot O-R-G. Our initiative was made possible by a generous grant from the Andrew W. Mellon Foundation. This podcast was produced by Aaron Slomsky-Pritz, with production assistance by Emily Varga, Elsa Hardy, Kelly Hernandez, Tess Wilwright, and Molly Anger. Theme music by Reed Turchin.